It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My honorable mother, truthfully, ever since my father's death, I do not seem to be a brother of the sons of Signor Gian Giordano, but a true bastard. Everyone can see that you have enjoyed and taken not only my paternal patrimony, but the ecclesiastical one as well. For two years I have held my abbey, I have seen you take the fruit of it. When you came into the house of Orsini, you received many benefits, and were elevated and exalted. That you cannot deny. But other women who came and benefited our house, such as my mother, she brought with her 33,000 ducats, and the favour of such a king as was her father. I mention this dowry and other things, because it is well known that you can take pleasure in possessing your dowry and other things. I have been deprived of my paternal state and my mother's dowry, and these are my displeasures and evil tidings which injure me. Letter from Napoleone Orsini to Felice della Rovere, June 1522. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.18, Felice della Rovere, the temporal mother of Bracciano. Greetings from my lovely new flat and my lovely new studio. Well, actually it's my home office, but it's cooler and fancier to call it the studio. The move all went smoothly. It is truly astonishing how much stuff you never knew you had until it gets packed neatly into about half a billion boxes. Also, books. Super heavy. Maybe you should think about getting a Kindle. But I am really excited to be back in the saddle, so let's get straight back into the action. Last time, we introduced Felice della Rovere, the acknowledged daughter of a pope who used her wiles and ambition to rise through the corridors of power. A widow at a young age, she frustrated the hell out of her father by refusing to settle down and marry any of the parade of idiots and parvenus he tried to pair her up with before agreeing to a very advantageous match to Roman power patriarch Gian Giordano Orsini. Not merely content with marrying into a very powerful family, 
She established her own independent wealth by buying a lucrative estate and then winning lucrative contracts to feed the people of Rome from her own lands. In all, she was doing pretty well for herself. She had finally produced a couple of healthy sons, Francesco and Girolamo, to complement the two daughters she had produced years before. She had position, power and a castle of her very own. But, as we saw at the end of the last episode, dark clouds were amassing. Her father, Pope Julius II, had died. Her husband, Gian Giordano, was 20 years her senior. Who knew how much longer his bucket would remain unkicked? She had played her hand well so far, but the deck was about to get stacked against her. How will she fare? Well, let's find out. But first... House news are expensive, so I need to, once more, plug this show's Patreon. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month and help me devote the time and resources it takes to keep it going. To sign up, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. You might reasonably expect Felice della Rovere's place in history to more or less end with the death of her father. His elevation to the papacy had given her rank. Surely his demise would see her power wane. Well, yes and no. Her father had been her stopgap, her guarantee of safety, her crash mat. While he was alive, assuming she didn't really tick him off, she was more or less untouchable. With him dead, that was all gone, and she was on her own. But as I said at the end of the last episode, she had spent the last decade preparing for this moment. Everything she had done had been in the service of buttressing and shoring up her position, so that when her father died, she would be strong enough not only to survive, but thrive. The new man on the throne of St. Peter was Leo X. He was a Medici, the son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, and while calling them friends may be overstating it a little, he and Felice were at least friendly. He was actually related to her husband, Gian Giordano, through his mother, though they were from different branches of the Orsini family. Like pretty much all the popes of the age, Leo promoted his family, most notably the children of his three sisters, all of whom became wildly unpopular. They were on him like leeches, bleeding the papal treasury dry of money and taking all of the plum offices. Felice saw her chance here to extend favours rather than demand them, and this is most evident in her indulgence of his love of hunting. Though Italian, Leo had been brought up, partly, in France, and there caught the hunting bug. The papacy had a hunting lodge and grounds at La Magliana, but while this had proven sufficient for his predecessors, it did not offer enough animals to keep him amused for long. He needed more places to hunt, and Felice offered to help. 
She introduced Leo to her business partner in the Roman grain trade, a man called Giuliano Lino, a highly profitable introduction for a man who had become one of the great builders of Renaissance Rome. He, along with Raphael, had already been commissioned to rebuild St. Peter's, and he tipped Felice off that Leo needed new hunting grounds. The wheat fields at her castle at Palo were feeding Rome. Now its forests and thickets could amuse the Pope. She even managed to get Leo to pay for the necessary renovations. He had basically free-run the castle, rent-free, which was fine by her. She only really cared about the grain on the fields outside. In return, Leo transformed the castle into a modern, fashionable hunting lodge. And she had his eternal gratitude. I think that's the dictionary definition of a win-win. Indeed, in October 1516, he rewarded her with a literal get-out-of-jail-free card. He decreed that if she were ever to commit a, quote, grave or serious crime, she would be immediately absolved. Which is, you know, handy. He also elevated her half-brother, Jean Domenico de Cupis, to the rank of cardinal, making him one of the few people not in the Pope's sisters' inner circle admitted to the college. This was a personal favour to Felice, demonstrating how well she had ingratiated herself with her father's replacement. Not content with wheeling her way into the Pope's good books, she was also put in charge of managing the family accounts of the Orsini family. This gave her access to quite considerable funds, and surviving accounts show liberal expenditure on luxuries such as clothes, jewels, and gifts to her servants and family. She also spent money on public works, such as a fountain in Bracciano, designed by the renowned architect Baldassare Peruzzi, which gave the ordinary people access to fresh drinking water. Oh, and murder, that too. Right next to lines detailing buying some hats and food, there is one for the, quote, murder of Tolfia di Caroli. Now, don't get too excited, this isn't what it sounds like. This is not money for a hit. It is actually compensation for his person's relatives. We don't know what, if any, involvement Felice had in this murder, probably not related at all. But it is there, in ink, on the accounts, a living reminder of the day-to-day violence experienced by everyone in Renaissance-era Italy. Her rise in prominence within the Orsini family was well-timed, as her husband was ailing. In September 1517, with his health fading fast, he made his final will, investing his wife with regency powers over his branch of the Orsini family until their six-year-old son came of age. We actually have a description of this from one of their attendants, Giovanni Roberto della Colle. Quote, Gian Giordano, sound in mind but weak in body, lay in the antechamber of the palace. He took his son Francesco by the hand and said to him, Francesco, my son, I must leave you, and I shall leave my wife, that is Madonna Felice, named as lady and guardian of the children and the estate, because she has been such a woman and such a wife, and so rightly she merits such an honour. At this, the Lady Felice broke down and began to cry. She replied, My lord, I would rather die as a slave in this house than a queen of anywhere else. Gian Giordano died a few weeks later. He and Felice had shared a very close bond. What they had cannot really be considered love. In many ways, for them, it was better than that. 
Theirs was a partnership based on respect, admiration and understanding. They supported each other. They had each other's back. Gian Giordano had benefited from Felice's familial connections, and in return he had given her the freedom to do more or less what she wanted. He had helped her become an Orsini, and this is why this surviving account is so important. For what was Felice? She was the illegitimate daughter of a dead pope. She wasn't even of noble blood. This gave her no long-lasting protection. This witness performance ensured that everyone knew of Gian Giordano's intentions, not only towards his children, to whom he left everything, but crucially towards his wife, whom he named interim head of the family. This was later ratified by Pope Leo, who agreed to it, but on one condition. She had to remain a widow. Few conditions would be more welcoming to Felice than being told she had to remain unmarried. She was now in control of one of Rome's most powerful families. What need would she have of her husband? This was, in many ways, the culmination of her life's work. She was wealthy, powerful, and free. I've said this before, but the position of a wealthy widow is, in many ways, the best thing for a woman to be in pretty much any time period up to the modern day. As the Lady of Bracciano, she was, in many ways, like the queen of a small kingdom or perhaps I should say, queendom. Her days were spent hearing petitions, resolving disputes, and receiving dignitaries. She was a diligent ruler. She had spent a lot of time, money, and effort on it, and had no desire to see all of this squandered. She worked hard, and employed talented people to help her. We see her hand in all sorts of day-to-day decisions that affected Bracciano, far more than one would typically expect of a ruler. She knew everyone and everything that went on around her, and her people knew it. In one petition, she was referred to as their, quote, temporal mother, and was praised for her, quote, immutable humanity and benignity. Just as Margaret Thatcher reveled in the role of the Iron Lady, Felice embraced this role of the firm but loving mother of her people. She was merciful, but also just. Of course, she wasn't just a temporal mother, she was also a birth mother and stepmother, and those children were coming of age and needed husbands and wives. She secured a good marriage for her stepdaughter Carlotta, and an even better one for her eldest daughter Julia to the Prince of Bessignano. Ever the shrewd businesswoman, she actually managed to turn a decent profit. Usually daughters were drains on family funds as they needed dowries, but Felice's links with Pope Leo made Julia such an asset that her betrothed actually gave her a dowry, and allies in northern Italy. Nice work. Well, sort of. Because this rather rubbed her stepson, Napoleone, up the wrong way. You see, as part of the deal, Felice secured a cardinalship for one of her son-in-law's relatives, a red hat that Napoleone had his eyes on. And he wasn't the only Orsini to feel this way. He was beginning to see her as the archetypal evil stepmother, using her power and influence to enrich herself and her children over the rest of the family. Napoleone had always had a bit of a problematic relationship with Felice. He was the eldest son of Gian Giordano's first marriage, and his right of inheritance had been cancelled after his mother had died and his father had remarried. This made him resentful, 
and he began to find allies amongst relatives who were unhappy that this woman, a woman, was ignoring their helpful, manly advice and was doing her own thing. No matter that she was doing it well and everyone loved her, it was not their idea, their advice. There is no doubt that she favoured her own children over her stepchildren. But that wasn't exactly unusual, or even really unwise. To act any differently would have disadvantaged her own flesh and blood, and been seen as a sign of weakness. These were the politics of a principessa, of whom Machiavelli would approve. But it did spell danger. And while now Felice was untouchable, her position was not unassailable. A change in regime in Rome could spell disaster for her, and that very thing happened in December 1521, when Leo X died. The dead Pope's supporters favoured Giulio de' Medici's candidacy. The French backed Alessandro Farnese. Henry VIII of England sent over a hefty bribe to try and get the college to elect Thomas Wolsey. How English history may have changed had that plan worked. In the end, however, the imperial candidate emerged victorious and was elected as Pope Adrian VI. Unlike almost all his predecessors for the past few centuries, and his successors for nearly half a millennium, he wasn't an Italian. He was Dutch, which worked against him. But he was also the boyhood tutor of Emperor Charles V, which, you know, helped a lot. Being Dutch, he was also acutely aware of the threat posed by a growing heresy in Northern Europe, led by an obscure monk you may have heard of, Martin Luther. Luther's 95 Theses called out many abuses and practices that he didn't like in the Roman Church, but many of them related to the corruption that had fested in the Eternal City for centuries. As the illegitimate daughter of a pope that owed his rank and hers to nepotism, Felice was a poster child for the critics. Pope Adrian didn't know Felice well and had no interest in spending political capital supporting her. This left her wide open for attack, and Napoleone decided the time was ripe to take his shot. His target was Palo Castle, which, if you remember, she had leased to Pope Leo, and was therefore currently unoccupied. How dare she, a woman, own her own property? This injustice could not be allowed to stand any longer. Napoleone seized the castle, but he had acted rashly and prematurely. He did not have the resources or the loyalty of his troops to outlast Felice. His stepmother, with vastly greater money at her beck and call, serenely and coolly waited him out. And after just two months, Napoleone was forced to return Palo to her. He was incensed at this embarrassment, and his mood only further darkened when he received further demands that he continue to send her revenue from his estates that was hers by right. In an angry, whiny letter written in June 1522, which I quoted at the start of the episode, he complained that she was bleeding him dry, that she was dishonouring the family name with her greed, unlike his mother, who had, quote, exalted our house. He accuses her of feeling, quote, more hate than love in you to me, despite him being, quote, a good son to you, and patiently I have tolerated all these injustices. 
It is a mark of just how successfully she had built her own personal wealth and influence that she managed to survive. We've seen so many times in this series how a change in regime in Rome could shatter even the most carefully prepared of walls, and yet Felice's held firm. She had outlasted Napoleone, who sulked off all the way to Venice, and she would too survive Pope Adrian, who died the following year after only 18 months on the throne of St. Peter. Given that this conclave happened so soon after the last, it's not surprising that the same two candidates as last time ran, Giulio de' Medici and Alessandro Farnese. Now, we need to zoom out briefly here, as the European context is important. France was at war with the Holy Roman Empire, which now included Spain. The causes aren't really key here, but like all of these conflicts, much of the fighting took place in Italy. Around the time of this conclave, French forces had invaded northern Italy, but had been defeated at the Battle of Biocca, which convinced the College of Cardinals to hinch their wagon to the imperial candidate in this election, Giulio de' Medici. The election of her cousin, who took the name Clement VII, was fantastic news for Felice. Once more, she had an ally in the Vatican, and it could not have come at a better time, because Napoleone was on manoeuvres again. Felice's power was based on her being the regent for her sons, Francesco and Girolamo. The two boys were still in their early teens, and had, therefore, not yet reached their majority. Her stepson petitioned the Pope to decree that Francesco should inherit the Orsini estate at the age of just 14, a very young age even for the time. This would end Felice's regency and give Napoleone the chance to influence his younger stepbrother. But once more Napoleone found himself utterly outsmarted and outmaneuvered by Felice. In a skillful bit of lobbying, she secured another four years as head of the Orsini family meaning that Francesco would have to wait until his 18th birthday. This would also crucially give her enough time to marry off her daughter while still head of the family. Moreover, she was given the power to nominate a caretaker for her role from outside the family should she fall ill, a power Napoleone had tried really hard to take from her. She had foiled him yet again. Now in her mid-forties, Felice had seen off several challenges and pretenders during her eventful life. But in 1527, she would face her greatest challenge yet. The election of the Medici Pope, Clement VII, had been great news for her, but bad news for, well, basically everyone else. Tudor fans among you will know him well as the man who failed to give Henry VIII his conscious uncoupling from Catherine of Aragon, but his most momentous decision came in 1526, when he double-crossed Emperor Charles V and buddied up with King Francis I of France. The Medici had historically been friends of France, and though those sorts of family ties aren't supposed to matter when you become Pope, well, have you been listening to this show? Enraged, Charles sent a vast imperial army bearing down on Rome under the command of the Duke of Bourbon. This was supposed to be a show of force. 
Charles's men would fight a few battles, wipe the floor with their enemies, and intimidate Clement into U-turning on his betrayal. But here's the thing. Clement stood firm. Even when all of his allies abandoned him, including, by the way, Lucrezia Borgia's widower Alfonso d'Este, who supplied some of his beloved cannon to the imperial army. Perhaps Clement knew that Charles did not have the money to pay his soldiers. Because he didn't, and they were mightily ticked off by that. But the Duke of Bourbon had an answer to their demands for pay. Rome, the gluttonous, wealthy, sacred cow of Christendom, stuffed with more wealth than they could imagine. It had been nearly 500 years since the Vikings had last sacked the Eternal City. It was high time that changed, and it was an eye-bulging target to Charles' soldiers. Bourbon was killed at the beginning of the attack, but this did nothing to stop the inevitable carnage that was to come. Every kind of violence, torment and horror was perpetrated on the citizens of Rome on that fateful day in May 1527. Prince pauper, man, woman or child, it didn't matter. The wealthy citizens of Rome huddled in their palaces in the vain hope that they may be able to survive that terrible day. Among them were Felice della Rovere and her children, Francesco Gerolamo and Clarice, in the Cupis Palace. A decision not to remain in the Orsini Palace was extremely fortunate, as that was one of the first targets for the rampaging imperial troops and was razed to the ground. Not for nothing was she woman literally named Lucky, though in reality she had always made her own luck. While most of the remaining wealthy citizens of Rome flocked to the Castel Sant'Angelo, with Pope Clement only making it there following a desperate last stand by his Swiss guards, who were massacred almost to a man, Felice and her family resolved to escape. They split into two groups. Her half-brother, Gian Domenico, took her sons, while she travelled with her mother, half-sister and daughter. The men first sought refuge in the home of a friendly Flemish cardinal, but even that wasn't enough to keep them safe for long, and they were forced to escape by literally shimmying down a rope from a window and slipping out of the burning city. They would eventually find refuge in the port of Civitavecchia. Felice and her female relatives had a similarly harrowing journey. Far more vulnerable than the men to drunken, mutinous soldiers, they dressed themselves in simple clothes and carried very little baggage to distract attention. These plain garments, though, covered a veritable chainmail of gems, like the Romanos at Yekaterinburg. So while women, rich and poor around them, were attacked, raped and killed, they managed to make it to their destination, which was the palace of Isabella d'Este. Yes, she's back. Isabella had rented the Dodici Apostoli Palace, a well-fortified building that would shelter around 2,000 terrified people, including Felice and her family. So, while Rome burned, Felice survived. But then, morning came, and the Imperial Army came a-knockin'. They demanded a huge ransom from the assembled notables, which not all of them could pay. Felice, as one of the wealthiest in the room, saved several lives that day, contributing to their ransoms and offering guarantees for others. Felice was not exactly known for her generosity, but she came through that day. A week later, Felice and her family emerged from the palace to be greeted by a harrowing sight. Ornate buildings had been reduced to cinders. Neighbours lay dead, 
their bodies festering in the streets. She had built a life in Rome, and now it lay in literal ashes around her. They went first to Civitavecchia to be reunited with the men and plan their next move. There they heard that her stepson, Napoleone, had taken advantage of the chaos to seize Bracciano, so that option was gone. Isabella d'Este offered her shelter in Mantua, but instead she decided to stay with her cousin, Francesco de Maria della Rovere, the Duke of Urbino. They settled at Fossombrone, a small palace in a hillside town about 30 kilometres northeast of Urbino. It was quiet, secluded and safe. She was, though, aware that, for the first time, she was dependent on others' charity. She lived frugally and managed her finances carefully, conscious that she didn't want to be a burden on her cousins, on whom she entirely depended. She was also welcoming of guests and cultivated an economic, yet pleasurable court. She was, in short, the perfect guest in Urbino. She did what she could for the many refugees who wrote to her, having lost everything. But there were limits. When she couldn't help them, she tried to put them in touch with people who could. But there were many whom she was forced to leave empty-handed. This took a tremendous toll on her mental health, and had long-lasting damage. One of her servants wrote to her, I have heard that you are physically well, but that your soul is afflicted from these great troubles. I can only say that I have the greatest sorrow for you. Meanwhile, over in Bracciano, Napoleone was fighting his own war against the Imperials, turning to piracy to fund his war effort. Just as Charles's men were abandoning Rome in 1528, they attacked Bracciano and forced him out. So, yet again, Felice had outlasted her stepson. She returned to Rome on a mule to find a blackened, hollowed-out shell of a city. But she and the wealthy, surviving citizens of Rome were determined to return it to its former glory. She had taken quite a financial hit from the carnage, but she was better off than most of her noble brethren. Once more, the grain harvest at Palo proved to be a lifeline, not just for the people of Rome, but also her bank balance. The imperial army had burned the fields around the city, but her lands had survived, and so the rocketing food prices benefited her greatly. With these funds, she could help rebuild not only her own residence, but the great Orsini Palace at Monte Giordano. She commissioned Baldassare Peruzzi to design a modern palace, but with a medieval twist. This was very different to its original design, but most important was what it symbolised. The Orsini had never really taken to Felice. They saw her as an outsider, an interloper leeching off their name and wealth. Now their palace, the great centre of their power, had Felice's seal, figuratively, if not literally, all over it. Another great project she got involved with was the saga of her father's tomb. While he was still alive, Pope Julius had commissioned Michelangelo to design a tomb so elaborate and ornate that it would rival the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, one of the original seven wonders of the world. However, he'd gotten a bit distracted with the small matter of painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and so, two decades on, he hadn't made much progress. After the sack, it seemed likely that the project would never be completed. This would not do for Felice, and she personally petitioned Pope Clement VII to ensure the work was completed. 
there was the requisite haggling and a tantrum from Michelangelo, but in the end, Felice was successful and the work continued. It's unclear if Felice is represented in the magnificent, if rather gaudy, tomb, which was eventually completed in 1545. That said, Caroline Murphy, in her biography of Felice, does have an interesting theory. Most of the work on the tomb was done by Michelangelo's assistants, but he personally sculpted two statues of two Old Testament women, Rachel and Leah, the two wives of Jacob. Murphy claims that Rachel dressed as a widow and staring lovingly up at the sculpture of Pope Julius, could very well have been modelled on Felice. But while many would always see her merely as the daughter of the Pope, her main focus these days was as a mother. Her priority was to see her daughter Clarice married and that her sons were well set up to manage the Orsini estate. All three were given a top-class education, including Clarice. Felice had greatly benefited from her schooling and ensured her daughter had all of the same advantages. Napoleone had made no secret of the fact that he wanted to take Clarice and force her to marry one of his allies. Mother and daughter kept careful terms on his movement, and Clarice was very well protected wherever she went. This didn't mean that she was without visitors or admirers, including her son Guidobaldo, who wrote a number of passionate letters begging his parents to let him marry Clarice. However, his father and Felice's cousin, Francesca Maria, slapped him down, saying, quote, Because you seem detached from reason, I shall make it clear to you that as servants of our past, we do not take in marriage the bastards of our house. He may have sheltered Felice in her hour of need, but he had standards. It's not clear if Felice ever heard the contents of this insulting letter, but she had no desire to upset the apple cart, and so set up a different match for Clarice. The lucky man was Luigi Carafa, the Prince of Stiliano, a wealthy landowner in the south of Italy, with good connections in Rome and with the imperial court. Another astute move from the master, Wheeler Dealer. While her daughter had dutifully done what she was told, her sons, Francesco and Girolamo, were far less obedient. Their mother may have been a della Rovere, but they were Orsini through and through. They didn't have her drive, will and wisdom. They were born into privilege and thought the world owed them a living. Francesco had inherited the abbacy of Fafa, but he paid very little attention to its running, leading to corruption and abuses by its administrators. Felice did her best to cover for her son's laziness, but eventually she had enough and wrote him a series of scolding letters. His incompetence meant that Felice made the somewhat unusual choice of tapping his younger brother, Girolamo, to inherit the main title of Lord of Bracciano. He was certainly more intelligent than his brother and a natural leader, but he was also rash and thirsted for revenge on his stepbrother Napoleone, whom he saw as an existential threat to his family. He didn't approve of Felice's softly, softly tactics against him. He saw this as a matter of honour, and soon their dispute threatened to tear the Orsini family apart. Inevitably, this war of words led to a war of swords. While Girolamo was away, Napoleone led 300 men on an Orsini castle at Vicovara and took Girolamo prisoner. He demanded a great deal of land as ransom, but Felice was having none of it. 
She had not worked all her life to hand over lands that were hers and her children's by right to her jumped-up arrogant swine of a stepson. She wasn't going to give him a single penny, a single blade of grass. She set to work, using her networks and alliances to build an army that laid siege to Vicavara. The standoff lasted for months. Napoleone stooped so low as to forge a letter in Girolamo's hand, begging her to release him and accusing her of treachery. But Felice saw through his ruse and continued the siege. Weeks turned to months, but Felice knew that she had outlasted Napoleone every time he had crossed her before, and she would do so again. Looking out over the battlements, Napoleone would have seen the artillery pieces, the gathering forces, and knew the game was up. It was only a matter of time before he ran out of supplies or the castle was stormed. He had to make his escape, which he managed with every piece of silver he could carry, but crucially without his hostage. But things were far from over, which brings us to Christmas 1533. The Orsini family gathered at Monte Giordano to celebrate the festive season. Everything was glad tidings and festive cheer, until, that is, they heard that Napoleone was on his way. Apparently, he wanted to, quote, kiss the hand of his sister Clarice, but this was a barely concealed threat to take her by force, and everyone knew it. Felice and her nuclear family tried to get out of the city, but Napoleone caught up with them on the road. In a fit of rage, Girolamo drew his sword and killed his stepbrother on the spot. It was a crime of passion, one could easily call it self-defence. Certainly, Napoleone had done enough to deserve it, but the crime of fratricide lingered on Girolamo. Indeed, he was condemned to death for his crime, but the sentence was commuted to a short imprisonment and a heavy fine. And then things got worse. The Pope threatened to take Vicovaro and Bracciano back. Vicovaro was one thing, but Bracciano was the family seat, the centre of their power and prestige. It took a huge bribe and weeks of feverish negotiations to get the restitution of these lands. This was arguably the most challenging and greatest piece of negotiation she had ever undertaken. Her wealth and power were at stake, but more importantly, so was her children's future. Without that title and prestige, her children had nothing. To achieve this, she had to do the unthinkable. She sold Palo Castle. I've talked a lot about this castle, because this was the basis of all of her success. She had bought this with her own money, staffed it with her own people, and ran the estate personally. Its proceeds underwrote every cheque. Its grain fed Rome. It was her life's work in bricks and mortar. But in the end, that's all it was. An asset and there was nothing she wouldn't do for her children. Over the next few months, she began to take a step back from her job as head of the Orsini family, passing her burden on to Girolamo. She left him a detailed handover note, informing him of everything he had to do, all the people he had to keep sweet, and all the responsibilities he now held. She settled in her palace in Rome, and enjoyed a contented, if sadly short, retirement. She saw friends and ensured those she loved were taken care of. In her last will and testament, she left ample funds for her family and church causes, but also gave generously to her servants, 
and in her last bequest required that they all be retained after her death. In October 1536, aged 52, she died in Rome. It was a quiet end for a pretty extraordinary life. She had a massive impact, but was largely forgotten in death. Christendom was convulsing with religious strife, and the life of a daughter of a long-dead pope long passed into insignificance. Her line, though, lived on. The Orsini were never truly stamped out. No buildings bear her name, no great deeds or feats of valour were written about her that would make her remembered. But it's a truism that I hold very dear, that there are a few things in this world more underrated than competence. People celebrate genius and conspicuous success and wealth, but those people that keep things ticking over, that always get it right, but don't make a great song and dance about it, are in many ways the most important people around. She was far from perfect, but then again, who is? She was a product of her time, a particularly venal, corrupt and vicious time. But I truly believe that in many ways, Felice can be a role model for us all. A symbol of how, if you stand true to your beliefs, fight for your family and work hard and get a little bit of luck, you can achieve anything. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.